What's up all you beautiful people? It's your boy Hobart coming to you on Friday, December 11th. It's 11th. Um, yeah, today is my last day of being 32. Tomorrow's the big 3-3, three, three, the numerically alliterative day of age. Um, it's pretty cool having as much as like never getting to have a water balloon fight on my birthday was kind of lame. Um, one thing I realized this week, uh, is that, you know, my birthday is so late in the year that it really grants me this opportunity to, to look back on the year of my last year of my life every year. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's a good time for introspection and reflection and, and looking back in the reverse direction <laughs> it's been a crazy year but uh it's been really also had some really high points and been incredibly transformative uh and just just amazing opportunity to develop myself as an artist um and really take that title for myself and and feel like i am worthy of calling myself such so thank you to all of you who have you know been so supportive of me along the way um we're getting close to almost a thousand streams on this podcast which is pretty crazy to think about that uh that many people have listened to my voice uh, i appreciate all of you who who tune into this and um just want you to know it's been so much fun on my end getting to do this and certainly plan on keeping doing it in the foreseeable future so big big shout out of love and appreciation to all of you that have been supporting the Bartcast in your own way and uh, supporting me as an artist in my own development so mucho gracias muchas gracias um today my guest is one of the more compelling uh, fascinating characters uh, that I've had the good fortune of getting to uh, speak with. Uh, as we talk about in this podcast, um, he was someone that was a couple grades ahead of me in elementary school. We went to the same elementary school in, in uh, San Geronimo. Uh, so we both come from the same small, tight-knit community, but he was a couple grades above me, so there was always like a mythical nature. You know, I knew his name, I knew of him, but our interactions were uh, limited, if not non-existence in, in elementary school. I'm, although I'm sure he knew my mom because she was the PE teacher at, at the school. Um, but in our adult lives, we've had the opportunity to to bandy words on several occasions and uh, I think there's always just been a mutual respect and a openness to friendship. And um, this is all, I've always thought of, uh, you know, my guest today, Sam Keck Scott, uh, I've always considered to be a very thoughtful and uh, genuine character. I feel like every time I've talked to, to Sam, um, I, he really is able to to grant others uh, this feeling of, of that you're really being focused on in conversation. Like you see someone that's going to look you in the eye and, and give you his undivided attention, which is, um, 
you know, it's, it's rare in the modern world and it's really a quality I admire a lot. Uh, I do feel like getting to talk with him both, both in this case virtually, but also in person is an experience in feeling heard and feeling seen and, um, certainly getting to hear his story only made me more interested to learn about him as a person and, and what a story it is today. We got a good one for you folks. Um, you know, in, in doing the research, I, uh, for this episode, I, I, you know, I checked out his writing cause Sam, you know, for those of you that don't know, uh, in the last, you know, few years has, has, really been putting a lot of energy into his writing and is, is growing into this really prolific wordsmith. And, you know, I, in my first experience of, of that was um, getting to hear him read this poem at our friend, shout out Nick Baker at, at a barn party that Nick had and, and Sam got up and, and read this really amazing poem uh, called how to love an earth moon is it Earth Moon River Woman? Man, I'm apologies to Sam if I'm mangling the name, but it was just a really beautiful, heartfelt piece. Uh, and I really got inspired by it and I wanted to give it to my mom as a gift. And he was gracious enough to send me a copy. So now lives uh, at my folks' house. My mom really loved the, the poem as well. But uh, but but then in doing the research for this, I, I, I started reading the... Um, the blog entries that Sam did for the National Geographic and just hearing the story that, that he tells, you know, um, you know, Sam's very like modest in describing himself and, and his life, but, but the dude has had some, some swashbuckling adventures out there on the high seas. And I really wanted to get to, to some elements of that story cause it's so compelling. It, it really put in my mind, uh, the, the old Tintin comics that I grew up with, my, my grandma uh, used to get me those. And there's a lot, a lot on there about, you know, being on a ship. And I was kind of picturing Sam as this Tintin figure, you know, minus the, the white dog, Snowy. But um, yeah, this was a really fun one. I'm super interested and, uh, and highly recommend that y'all check out Sam's writing on his website. Um, and I'll put that link in the show notes so that you guys can all, uh, access it. I think he also talks about it at the end, but, uh, but yeah, this was a really fun one and really grateful to have had the opportunity. Thank you so much, Sam. So, you know, one of the things, uh, we, we did this on Skype, so there's a little bit of delay at times and some of the words get kind of garbled, but hopefully it's, uh, not too difficult to follow. Um, certainly did our best and these unique circumstances to bring you uh, an episode that is fun to listen to. So without further ado, let me introduce to you, my man, Sam Keck Scott, on this episode 20 of the Bartcast. Great to hear from you. What a surprise. <laughs>
robot. All right. We uh, we working. It's all working. The, the digital right, good, spider good. web has been untangled, and uh, and we're we're up and running. So. I like it. Yeah. We're connected from a distance on this on this crazy web that we untangled. Exactly. Our our digital hive mind tendrils are properly aligned and relaying these yeah. ones and zeros back and forth across hey. uh from East Bay to far north. And um yeah, man, how's your Tuesday going? Uh my Tuesday's going just fine. I, uh, I forgot we were doing this. It sounds like you did too. Yeah, so uh, yeah, sure. I'm glad. I'm glad that I had as much of an unscheduled day as I did. So this is uh, working out perfectly. Yeah, I uh, I had like last night. I I've been like trying to do this bullet journal thing to keep. Uh, it's mostly for like the days that I don't have things that come up on my schedule, so that I can take advantage of my free days. And so I'll like sit down the night before and write out you know, kind of my bullets of what I want to get done. And so I did it last night and I had all these things written down and I forgot, uh, you know, I had it on my, like my Apple calendar that we were doing this today, but I didn't put it in the bullet journal. So then I'm glad like this morning I was like, Oh yeah, that's right. We're doing a podcast. Awesome. So, um, it pushed a couple. I hope it, I hope it somehow fits in under (laughs) one of your bullet points. I hope you, I added it in there. Just I want to so practice. I, check I want to practice interviewing today. I don't know who I'm going to interview, but uh... anyone will do. Yeah. So, exactly. Anyone will do. Yeah, exactly. So, well, this is my uh, my first time on a podcast, so thank you for giving me a brand new experience in life. Hell yeah, dude! I got the I got the exclusive exclusive scoop. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna hear it all. You hear it all here first, everybody. Hell yeah! Well, well. Uh... It's very, uh, it's it's really much more simple. I feel like than the the word has taken on, you know, such a big meaning now that it's become such a like legitimized art form. And uh, I feel like the 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 common experience that I see both on the podcast I listen to and and the ones that I myself have held is just uh, you know when people do go on for their first time you know, there's all this, there's feelings and thoughts that come up like, Oh my God, I'm going to be recorded. Oh, I hope I'm like entertaining enough of a guest. And I always try to, uh, set them at ease by just saying, look, you know, um, so much of it is just about giving the audience the opportunity to feel like they're sitting in a room with us and listening in and almost like thinking for them in a way, or just, you know, it's, I love putting on podcasts when I'm doing chores or on a long drive and, it's just kind of like a Me way to, to let my brain go on autopilot. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I hope that we can be a nice accompaniment to people's dish doing and driving. Uh, maybe, maybe they're running on the beach right now. Thank yeah. you for uh, <laughs> welcoming us into your ears. We appreciate it. Yes. Yes. We are. It's very good to be here and, and hopefully we will continue to, to soothe your drums. Um, yeah, man. Oh, I just spent the last uh, last about hour, hour and a half um, reading through your your adventures and your, you know, I wanted to do some as some prep to kind of get in uh, inside your mind as as a writer and and now having read some of your work, seeing like the adventures that you've had of of which uh, mm. I got pretty excited about because I it was 
you know, we both, you know, for those of you out there that don't know me and Sam both come from the same small community of San Geronimo Valley. And, you know, we went to the same elementary school and middle school. And, you know, I think you're, you got a few years on me or you were like just a couple just outside that. uh, I feel like just outside the range of us having had a lot of shared experiences on the playground, but like, you know, as with, with older kids, there's always a certain level of lore about the older kids in your community, you know, (laughs) the the, the Scots, Sam and Will Scots were people I had long heard tales of your greatness before ever our paths crossed in the, in the uh, physical. Well, well, please don't, don't forget about the best of us, which is Will's twin sister, Chloe. Okay. She's, she's the one. She's the one you should have on the podcast. She's, she's, the, she's the best of us for sure. Okay. Well, that's, that's, um, I did not know that, uh, that Will had a twin. That's news to me. Yeah. Yeah. Much, much like yourself. Right. Well, we're twin. We're like almost Irish twins shy of, uh, about 10 months, I would say. Oh, wait. Wow. I thought that you and Tony were twins. <laughs> yeah, that's. I really common, did. Oh my yeah, god! A lot of has a that lot happened of, to you uh, before? I'm guessing. Oh, totally. It has. <laughs> yeah, throughout our childhood, like everyone assumed we were twins, but. Uh, well, that's amazing. That's amazing. I really, I just never even doubted it for a moment. I've thought that <laughs> as far as long as I remember you, which is a very long time, I yeah. have thought that you two were twins. So that's crazy. Well, we, Excuse it, me for not knowing. No, no worries. <laughs> it's all good. Like we definitely sound so much alike, and we have such a similar kind of vibe about us and and have often who's older Ooh, well that's something you're what do you think we we make everybody guess usually that's one of our favorite games well wow um i'm gonna go ahead and say i'm basing this on nothing but just a 50 50 coin toss i'm gonna say that tony's older nice well uh it's funny you say that because you know nine out of ten people think that he's the older one and nine out of ten people are wrong (laughs) <laughs> we we do well, this I'm honored to be in such good company <laughs> oh yeah no we we do this poll with everybody that asks us asks us that question and uh yeah you know i guess i have the more youthful countenance you know <laughs> yeah, yeah you definitely do have that going yeah. just just recently so so my older brother will is four years older than me and he was you know very much my older brother four years is a big chasm when you're kids but then as you get into be adults it shrinks and shrinks and only just recently have a few people asked who's older and then guessed me um which i don't quite know how to take it there would be like a younger version of me that might be flattered by that but i'm like <laughs> uh oh am i looking am i looking a little old like maybe i should <laughs> maybe i should maybe i should work out more i don't know you, maybe <laughs> too much sun damage from standing outside all the time yeah or maybe you're just catching up to them in life experience you know as I feel like that time difference compresses the more years we get under our belt, you know? Yeah, it absolutely Your your relative age distance in relation to the time that you've experienced, you know, continues to shrink with each year because, you know, you've, whereas when you were eight years old being four years apart, well, that's half your life, but now it's, it's a fraction. So, um, yeah, I certainly feel that way with my brother. And I think like, you know, being 21 months apart, being only one grade apart, we had like a lot of the same friends growing up and a lot of people just assumed, um, when, especially when we would have like the same hair. Now I have pretty long hair and he's keeps his pretty short. Um, 
we get that less and less, but, um, but that's, there's always, it always tickles me to, to find out the holdouts that still think that we're twins and, you know, certainly our voices, yeah. I get that a lot, that our voices are super similar. You, you actually blew my mind with this one. I, it's not even something that I thought. I just knew you were twins my whole entire life. <laughs> yeah, the, com- <laughs> so, the confidence. So here I just you- got my world flipped on its head right, right here in public in front of everyone doing their dishes. There you go. Yeah, there's some, some dishes dropped in the background. There was some, oh, yeah. some clattering, oh, yeah. clattering plates and whatnot. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, man. But, I, dude, I just want to say to start out that uh, – you know, being someone that has fallen in love with traveling, um, myself, you know, reading about your adventures on this boat, this 108 year old ship really like got my mind going in this way that, um, that happens every so often, but it just like started getting me daydreaming about like my own adventures that I've had and, and just, uh, kind of mm. awakening the, the wanderlust back in me, um, <clears throat> that that you know that time and again arises but it just it uh you know i think i got i started at the uh sailing 108 year old ship through the most biologically diverse marine ecosystem on the planet yeah epic title <laughs> and then, uh, yeah we have just want to make sure i didn't just everyone already knows what to expect right exactly. a little spoiler in there it's a, make for a great acronym and then uh then made it from there i think the la- I made it up to out of the blue and um yeah I think that's the last I think that was the last of the uh of, of the National journey. Geographic articles. You have one more called Apocalyptic Skies Junkyard Sharks. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, that was uh, um that was after that voyage that I was mainly writing the blog about um and I wrote later once I was home back in the states I wrote a um one last entry about the original voyage on that boat in 2010 going through the Red Sea. But just to, yeah, just to make this all make sense and put it into context, I, uh, I was very lucky to get to be part of a environmental organization called the Biosphere Foundation who have this. So in, in 2009 and 10, I moved to Malta, um, in the Mediterranean after meeting these people who run this foundation, the Biosphere Foundation, and they had just bought a new boat, well, new to them, but it was a hundred year old, um, Dutch catch built in 1910. And it was in horrible shape, which is why this group bought the boat. They do marine protection work all over Southeast Asia with an emphasis on, um, coral reef protection and setting up marine protected areas. And they needed a new research vessel and they, bought this boat for a song in Malta and then got a group of 10 of us to volunteer to help them do a full retrofit on the boat. And I'm convinced it probably would have actually been easier and cheaper to just build a boat from scratch. Cause this thing was like absolutely in disrepair. It was about to get sold for scrap in this Maltese shipyard. And then we came along and spent nine months fixing it back up and then wow. sailing it to Singapore. Wow. And all in all, that was a, um, that was a 13 month adventure and then eight years later, or seven years later, in 2017, they, is that right? I think it was 2017. They yeah. invited me back to go on another, um, basically they had been running, continued to fix the boat up in the seven years since I hadn't ever seen it again after this year plus wild adventure traveling. 
on this boat that we had just rebuilt and it was like basically not really seaworthy. It was, it was really like pretty dangerous and also just by far the most epic adventure of my life. I don't <laughs> plan to ever top that one. Yeah. Um, in many ways we're lucky to have survived it. And, um, seven years later they invited me and some of the original crew back basically as like a reward for the hard work from all those years earlier to go to Raja Ampat in, in Indonesia, um, which is the northeasternmost corner of Indonesia off the north tip of, um, Papua New Guinea and well, not Papua New Guinea, the Island of New Guinea, which Papua New Guinea is half of, um, and this area of Indonesia, so Indonesia is an archipelago of 18,000 islands, most of which are uninhabited. And then Raja Ampat is like an archipelago within that archipelago, which is 1,500 islands. And it's considered to be the place where the healthiest coral reefs are left on the planet. And so the Biosphere Foundation wanted to go there and set up some of their restoration projects and education projects. And they invited uh, some of the original crew back, which I was one of as sort of like our reward for everything from seven years earlier. And so we went for three months, all we left from Bali, which is where the boat now is head, like their headquarters are and sailed this boat all across Indonesia. Um, and then got to Raja Ampat and did just the, the best diving of that you can basically do in the world. It was like traveling back in time, basically to, to 30 or 40 years ago when reefs all over the world still looked like they still do there. But now we have, um, coral reefs are in terrible, a terrible state all over the globe. So it's yeah. nice to know that there's still some places where reefs are still thriving and still kind of seeding the rest of the sea with coral polyps and, um, sort of like a little nursery up there in, in northeasternmost Indonesia, which is just so remote. I mean, very hard to get to. It took us a month to sail there. And it was a wild adventure. And I got I had the good fortune of getting to write on National Geographic Society's blog during yeah. that whole voyage. So that's what Hob that's what Hobart was referring to is those articles that I have online. Um, yeah, and it and was just I've it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. That's awesome, man. Yeah. And I want to dive into that, but I wanted to start by just, you know, asking you about how you fell in with these people in the start. I, I read a little bit a brief, briefly about it, but, um, how does a, I, I believe you were 25 at the time for this first voyage, right? Yeah. When you yeah, first, right. like, how does a, a 25 year old <clears throat> Sam Scott find himself in Malta scrubbing raw rust off a hundred year ship? Like what, what happened? How did you find yourself there? <laughs> it was pretty lucky. Um, I had been leading uh, this wilderness trip in Patagonia earlier that year in 2009. Um, and I spent five months in South America. And then I had just gotten back to California and really didn't know what was next for me. I had just started applying to um, field biology jobs, which is what I do for work. And... My brother has this mentor um, that he does rites of passage work with out in the Eastern Sierra in the Owens Valley. And he was leaving on a big trip with them. And so I drove him out there for like the send off farewell. And I ended up at this dinner table and I sat next to this Belgian man who I had never met before. And he told me his name was Laser. And I thought that was unusual. And we started to chat and he turned out to be the captain of this boat. Um, and they had, so he, we were chatting and he was asking me what I do. And I told him, I just got back from 
all these months in South America and now I'm not quite sure what's next for me. And he was, and I asked him what he does and he says he runs this planetary coral reef foundation, which is now called the biosphere foundation. Um, and that they had just bought a boat in Malta three days before we ended up at a, at a dinner table together. And so just in the course of this brief conversation at dinner, I was already like, how do I end up on this boat with these people? I'll do anything basically. (laughs) And I told him that immediately, you know, I said, do you need a dishwasher? He said, well, we need a lot more than a dishwasher. You want to like, do you have any sailing experience? And I was like, no. He was like, do you have any construction experience? And I was like, no. And he was like, well, (laughs) we're looking for a crew and we can't pay you, but we can give you room and board for the year and fly you out to Malta. And I was like, I'll do anything for you guys. I'll just, I'll bring all my enthusiasm. I've always wanted, I always had a dream of going to sea. I know a lot of people do, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was just something that I felt like would happen yeah. at some point in my life. But then suddenly I was 25 and like showing no signs of going to sea. I wasn't doing anything to make that dream come true. And then here it just felt like it landed in my lap. And I, and I, I, I recognized it when I saw it. I was the like, call oh, I'm going to do this. this is... Exactly. This dinner that I just happened to like sit next to this random guy is going to change my life. And it did. Did you tell um, him that they, uh, you did so... tall ships, right? With Alan Charn back in the day? No. Oh, you no. guys never did tall no. ships. Mm-mm. Okay, I was gonna yeah. say you could be like that was I did tall ships with shout out Alan Charn. Um, wow, <laughs> yeah, no, that's amazing though. Like what a what a life changing opportunity just overnight, just over a table, you find yourself you know taking this just fundamental right turn in the course of things, and and that's really yeah. And it's funny, it's funny how things work out like that, right? Because I feel like most of the big life changing experiences in my world have come from moments more like that than like really trying to force something. Um, and it just, it's like, I, I try to remind myself when I am trying to, I feel like I'm kind of beating my head against the wall, trying to make something happen that just doesn't seem to want to happen to also just be patient and like, let, let the things that are meant to come for you come to you. Not to say to like, just sit around and not do anything, but, um, And I just find that that looks more like what my experiences have been like is like, Oh, I never could have guessed. And I could have never made that happen. It just like, it just came along and I was ready to say yes. Yeah. And so in many ways, you know, I think in, in especially like it's a Western idea of like kind of forging ahead, making your destiny, you know, uh, kind of powering through to achieve your desires. And there's, you know, the, which has its own virtues definitely that are, that are obvious to a lot of us, but there is something to be said for kind of like this, like kind of receiving mentality that like, I, I too have found that most of my greatest opportunities have come not because I pushed for it, but because I was, I like did the, the sort of existential mulching to, to be ready to receive um, the gifts of the cosmos. And I, I think in your case, having done this, you know, having studied biology, having done this outdoor, uh, you know, tri- these trips, and then just by virtue of your character, being able to communicate, you know, what a good crewmate you'd be. You were, you know, with, without knowing, kind of pre- prepping yourself for this golden opportunity. Yeah, yeah, totally. And you never really know what 
like sometimes you have no idea what the preliminary work you're doing is for until suddenly you're like, oh, that's what it was all for. Now, right. now this, I see why I did all that. You have this like synergistic combination. Like that, that's kind of how finding filmmaking was for me. Like I had all these, uh, what's the word? Um, like prerequisites that I didn't, wasn't aware at the time that I'd been collecting, but like, you know, I got a mm. degree in communication and I liked, I've always liked to write and, you know, I, I love, I've watched a million movies in my life. It's one of my favorite things to do. And, um, you know, both with this podcasting thing and that as well, it's like, you start to feel like when I finally got the chance to direct, it was like, Oh, like I might not have that much experience behind a camera, but I've got a whole bunch of experience in dealing with it. And that's like what 90% of this job is, yep. you know? So. Exactly. Um, exactly. It's funny how the, yeah, how those, you know, we, I think when, it can be a bit daunting uh, when looking at these kind of specialized roles or opportunities, you know, you want to go do a thing, but we can get caught up with the can'ts and, and what I don't have in the way of experience. Um, and a lot of us end up ignoring just how much we got going for us and in, in being able to make these things happen. And um, you certainly were able to take advantage of that. And I, I just wanted to hear a little bit because it was briefly touched on in your articles in this story about your first voyage, but that to me sounded like in itself, like such an exciting, thrilling, you know, this idea of a 25 year old, you know, intimately getting to know this ship that you're rebuilding and then setting out on that same ship to sail, you know, the Mediterranean and red seas. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. It's something that I've, um, I haven't written about as much as I would like to yet. There's a, like a, I feel like a book length yeah. project that I've been sort of toying around with for a while because that voyage was, was the one of those two, you know, the, the, the second one was amazing. It had so many incredible pieces to it, but it was just three months long on a boat that was like already working just fine and that people who knew how to use it and that first voyage we were green like there even the um the three people in our crew who even knew how to sail at all had never sailed this old boat before so it was a pretty wild adventure i mean we like i said we spent nine months in malta um most of the time living on the boat while we fixed it up at the beginning we couldn't because it was in such disrepair that we had to live in an apartment all of us like squeezed into this tiny apartment and then just going to the shipyard every day six days a week at least and sometimes seven and um you know we had to the boat was on dry dock for three months we had to i think replace nine square meters of the steel hull because there was so much rot and rust and we had to take the masts off and completely re build um we almost entirely rebuilt the mizzen mast which was 80 feet tall and the main mast is 114 feet tall it's as long as the boat it's as tall as the boat was long um which is just an absurdly huge yeah, mast it's, it's like too, way way too big made out of douglas fir um and it was just rotten in all these spots we had to just take out these huge chunks of the mast and and glue in new ones and um, you know, new engine put in, new steering, new everything essentially. And, but by the time we left, even though we had done so much work, 
the boat was still not at all seaworthy, but we had to get out of there in a rush because we had to beat the monsoon season in the Indian Ocean. If we didn't leave then in late June, we were going to have to wait uh, like another year or however. I don't, I'm not sure how long, but it would have been basically we just had to get out of there all of a sudden. And when we left, the deck was covered in it was totally rotten, like spongy underfoot, the old <laughs> teak. And every time it would rain or a wave would crash over the bow, which happened a lot in the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean, it would just absolutely rain inside the boat because um, there was just holes all throughout the deck. And we didn't have a radar. We didn't have a weather fax. We couldn't use the mainsail at all because we were too afraid that if we flew that much canvas off that big of a mast, it would tear wow. the deck off <laughs> from the force. So we couldn't use the main mast. So we were just like, we suddenly left. Like none of us had ever sailed this boat before. Most of us had never sailed before. And we just like left Malta in a hurry and um, spent the next four and a half months slowly making our way across the Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal, down the Red Sea, across the Indian Ocean, down the um, Malacca Strait to Singapore. And we had to stop all the time. We stopped in Egypt twice, two different ports in Egypt. We stopped in um, Yemen, Oman, Sri Lanka. And at every one of those ports, we had to do major repairs because the boat was just like slowly peeling yeah. apart the whole time. <laughs> so, um, and to add to it, the Somali pirate activity that I don't know if you ever heard about, but it was a pretty much an international story for a while there. Yeah, that movie Captain it. Phillips starring Tom Hanks is about um, that that activity when the Somali pirate problem was really like peaking was that summer of 2010 when we went right through the what they call Pirate Alley, which is the yeah. Gulf of Aden. Um, wow. Did you, did you have any close calls? We knew that we were doing something. Yeah, we, we knew we were doing something really risky. And a lot of people told us, like, don't go there, don't go there. You you all would be sitting ducks, you know, 10 people. Because the the Somali pirates, more than cargo, they are in it for ransom money. So they're looking for hostages. So like a big container ship is only going to have a few people on it. And they're pretty well defended. They're hard to board. But an old <laughs> shitty sailboat like the one we were on with 10 people unarmed like we would have just been like such a choice prize um so people really warned us not to do it but at that point we were all just so dedicated to getting to seeing this dream through basically that we we decided to just go go ahead one of the crew members got off the boat in egypt and rejoined us in sri lanka because um basically his family just was like you can't you can't take that big of a risk um but anyway, as we were approaching Pirate Alley, we were still like a day's sail north of where we thought we really had to worry about anything. We heard um, we heard a voice giving a distress signal over the radio saying that they were being boarded by pirates, and we were just listening to this, which means that I think our I think our range on that radio was like forty miles max. So we knew that somewhere within 40 miles of us, a, a boat was being boarded by pirates and there was nothing we could do about it. We just heard them like giving the distress call and then it went silent. We never heard anything else. We never heard what happened. Talk about ominous. Um, that must have been so creepy sitting and on then, the boat hearing that. It was 
it was pretty scary. So then we ended up going and anchoring off of these um, uninhabited islands off the coast of Yemen for a couple of days just to like gather ourselves and make sure we were like well rested and really ready to like when we left there, we would be really in Pirate Alley and we um, we wanted to just be able to go as fast as we could. And what ended up being the saving grace is that it was really rough weather at that time. And so they're out there in little speed boats, but they don't do well in like big, heavy swell. And so we did see one day and I, and I've always wondered if this was pirates or not, but we saw this big Zodiac, um, with probably like five guys in it off in the distance, looking at us through binoculars. And there was like no markings on the boat and they were just looking at us and looking at us for a long time one day. And then they just never approached, but we were like, Oh shit. Is that, <laughs> is that pirates but also one thing that made us feel better was that there was a lot of um international military presence out there there were helicopters flying around there were we went past a bunch of different like warships of different kinds from different countries so you know when you're out in the ocean like that it's essentially just like a blue desert and it's really easy to be all alone but there did feel like every couple hours we'd see something some boat that was trying to help with this problem. So anyway, we ended up being fine. It was, it was a little rough on the nerves for a couple of days, but makes for a yeah, good story. No doubt. That's, I mean, it's, it's just, I'm sure just a, ch- a couple chapters in the book, but, but what a couple chapters and you know, the, that was kind of my first thoughts, you know, hearing you mention and look, I got, a, I got, google maps pulled up right now and i'm looking at this route that you took and i'm like man if that ain't a book i don't know what it is it's just just traveling that that amount of distance um at a speed at which you can actually watch it go by that's that really must give you perspective on on the planet you know yeah it really does i, I you know i first all the traveling i've done nothing ever felt better than traveling by sailboat because you just really feel like you you earn it you know like whenever you get to a new place i remember the first time we left malta and i'd gotten really used to malta which is this strange um tiny catholic country out in the middle of the mediterranean desert and sort of feels like a weird like almost like a melting pot between like italian culture and middle eastern culture um so we left there and we spent 10 days just bobbing through nothing but blue water like you don't see anything else you almost can't tell you're moving forward or not you know it's just like i guess we're going somewhere and and then suddenly 10 days later arriving to port Said, egypt where suddenly out my porthole of my bunk there's this green and white mosque and the call to prayer is happening all the time and the food is suddenly completely different and the people are dressed differently and just i was like oh wow like in those 10 days we actually traveled at a natural speed, like a human, more of a human speed. And we arrived to this whole new world. Whereas if you just get off an airplane and you're just kind of jet lagged and you arrive on some other distant part of the planet, you, it's just really like jarring. Cause yeah, the human mind kind of recoils an unnatural totally. way to travel the, the that human distance mind recoils um, from that much, that much distance. And exactly. Were you guys yeah, exactly, tra- at exactly, this point, so traveling primarily under sail power or was this uh, using the engine or when you were uh, fording the Mediterranean? Sorry, you cut out for a second. Did you say, were we, were we traveling 
Yeah, you yeah, across sales? the Mediterranean that was that. I, I know you weren't able to really use the main sail, but were you? Uh, how how were you guys traveling at this point? Yeah, yeah, we still had. Um, so we had the mizzen sail off the the um, the smaller of the two masts, which is closer to the stern. We had that sail and then we had the roller a roller furling in a genoa up on the front off of one of the stays of the main mast so we weren't flying the main sail but we still had three sails and we were sailing when we could though i I remember a lot of that mediterranean crossing um, there wasn't much wind and because we were trying to beat the monsoons we did motor um we didn't just do the thing where you like let yourself be in the doldrums and drift around for a while and then finally catch your tack we um would normally if there was enough time where we weren't getting any good wind, we would just turn on the mm-hmm. motor and motor along. Okay. Um, so we were doing a combo the whole trip, but in the red sea, we had stiff wind the whole time, really high seas. And we, okay. um, I wanted to ask you, we were sailing. I wanted to ask we were, you, what is it fast. like going through the Suez canal? That's such like a huge architectural triumph. I'm just curious. You know, I know that the, there's all the different locks if you need to go uphill. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, what was that whole process like? Uh, it was, it was, it was pretty cool. You have to get a pilot. Um, you're also, well, first of all, you're like the second you get to Egypt and are staying at any ports or going through the Suez Canal or anything, you're, you're paying bribes like crazy so the captain knew this because he had done laser captain laser knew this because mm. he had been through the suez canal before so we stocked up on the i guess he said that they're going to want nothing more than marlboros but they have to be made in america <laughs> they have to be american marlboros and then just like a bunch of cash and every time you're boarded by a customs agent or anyone you need to help with visas or anything, you have to give backsheesh, which is a bribe. And you, so we were just giving like cartons of cigarettes to everybody and tons of cash to everybody. And then when we finally got to the Suez Canal, you have to hire a pilot to help you go through it because it's a really tricky thing to navigate and it's very narrow. So you're going, um, you're going on this like incredibly narrow shoot of water with these huge tankers and container ships going past you which Mm -hmm. are like buildings when you're close to them um and you're we're on this you know relatively small sailboat 114 foot sailboat which is not small but it's small next to a container ship so you're like brushing sides with these huge boats in this really narrow canal um but i got to be at the helm a couple times in the suez and there's there's no room for error and I remember I was I was pretty nervous whenever I was actually whenever I was actually at the helm. And then the pilot would always be there, and he was an Egyptian pilot. And then would occasion you know whenever there was anything especially tricky, okay. he would always just jump on the helm. Um, but it was cool. Yeah, it was a, it was a really interesting. It was a fascinating experience. I've never been anywhere like it. And I know not that many people get right. to go yeah, sailing through the, the Suez Canal. One of so the seven wonders of the modern world, or or whatever. I remember having a had a children's book and, and it, that was one of the, one of the things on there. Um, and you know, as far as you were talking about when you, once you got down into the red sea that you had some more winds, did you ever have to weather some major storms on the voyage? Uh, yeah, yeah, we did. The, the red sea was 
really especially crazy because there was this phenomenon called a haboob that was blowing east off the Sahara, which is when there's such a big dust storm in the Sahara that it kicks up all this particulate. And it's just, it's like a hmm. atmospheric dust storm. Um, this is what I write about in that last Nat Geo article. Um, so for the three weeks that we were in the Red Sea, we were just covered in red dust. Like everything, we are, every part of the boat was covered in, in a dusty film. And the, um, the sun, you could like stare right at the sun the whole three weeks because it was just this like red glowing thing. You know, it's similar to what we get here during wildfire season in California now that we're all used to. Um, kind of looks like a really, really gnarly smoky mm-hmm. day like some of the ones we had this year. Um, and it was hot. It was like over 100 degrees day and night. This dust just held the heat in and we were all like – covered in heat rash and losing weight and sweating like crazy. And of course it's raining inside the boat because we had this heavy swell that we were going straight into. So anyone at the helm, if they didn't do it exactly right, we're taking the swell straight to the bow and then like hundreds of gallons of seawater would go sloshing over the deck. This happened all the time. Um, and so it was just like a sauna inside the boat dripping (laughs) moldy. It got, like heavy during the red sea um and everyone's covered in heat rash and dust and our hair's red <laughs> and the sails are red and the, everything every glass of water we drink has red dust on the surface it was it was a lot but um pretty much that entire three weeks we were dealing with some pretty heavy weather like it was just non-stop swell not rain um we did deal with some rain in the Indian Ocean, but the main like big rainstorms and and crazy like lightning out at sea all happened on the second voyage in Indonesia, where we would just, just get these squalls that rolled through, and it's it's scary. It's scary to be out at sea on your own little island um, and get like that kind of weather and just feel real small <laughs> at the mercy yeah, I've, I've at heard the mercy even, of the elements. Even the small, um, I remember know, squalls or storms uh, that to like seasoned sailors are nothing. To the uninitiated, it feels like the boat's going to sink, right? It really, truly does. I mean, you can't imagine that. It starts to pitch so much. I remember one time, like, the widest part of the boat is the um, the galley. There's, like, a living room galley, and it's probably, like, 15 feet of floor space across. So you step out of the bathroom, out of the head, and it's, like, probably 15 feet to the kitchen sink across the beam of the boat. And I remember one day stepping out of the head and it was really pitching and then just flying from one side of that room all the way until I slammed against Mm. the kitchen sink. Like I was just airborne for 15 feet. It's like, you really feel like there's no way this boat's not going to sink. familiar with with sailing terms, pitching is, can we talk about the difference between pitching and rolling? Um, Yeah, well, okay, I hope I know the proper answer to this being someone who just got thrown into sailing, but never actually like studied it. I think that pitching is when you're going side to side and rolling is front to is stern to bow or bow to stern. Is that right? Do you know the answer to that? Pitching was like when, uh, let's say the boat, we're looking, looking at the boat as if it's, uh, moving forward. I thought pitching was like when the boat, um, when the bow is going up and down and so it's tilting front to back. And I thought rolling was side to side. But but you might be oh, right. That's uh, th- yeah that that 
Well, no, you could very well be right too. I've actually never, I've never thought to even question the difference. Gotcha. I kind of okay. call it all pitching, <laughs> but there probably is a difference. And really, what's going on when you really get moving <laughs> yeah. is you're pitching and rolling. You know, the whole boat is just in this crazy like undulation, and you're just at the mercy of whatever the water's doing. And um, you know, the more skilled you are at the helm, which we all got good by the end of that trial the the more you can keep the boat um from doing too violent of pitching because you know if you really if you just let go of the wheel then you really could get swamped and and keel over um so you have to really stay on it and it's like an endurance workout when you're standing at this huge old like pirate ship wheel with all the Mm. you know wooden spokes and you're just like twisting it one way and then grabbing it stopping it twisting it the other and it's all just to try to stay pointing in the direction you want to point, but with the currents and the waves and the wind and all that sail out, it's like, not to mention you probably have almost no visibility. Um, So we all, and some of these, some of these, I'm I'm picturing you behind the Um, the helm in a storm at night and like trying to see what direction the waves are coming from or, you know? Oh yeah. I know you you're do if, if at night in a big storm, you're doing nothing but looking at the compass on the helm stand and just, just, basing it all on that it's your only way of knowing which direction you're pointing wow um but yeah i know often um, no visibility so for sure now i I'd, I'd like to talk you know a little bit about your writing and i'm just i'm curious when did you start you know getting into doing writing when did you start thinking of yourself as a writer were you did you keep a journal on this first voyage <clears throat> Oh, that's a tender, that's a tender subject for me because no, I barely kept any, any record of the first voyage. And now I really want to write about it 10 years later. And I kicked myself all the time because right. there's just those little details that you, Did you take that a lot you of forget, photos? you know, Did you just, have a lot of pictures. Um, yeah, the photos are the way that I go back and try to get my memory jogged. Um, so thank goodness for that. We have, we have photos and video, um, and that's that's the best way. But I I got into writing um, probably shortly before shortly before that first voyage. I was like writing poetry and kind of like getting interested in writing, but d- didn't really do it. When I would travel, I would keep like a a travel blog, and I definitely um, you know added some more flourishes to it than maybe your average just like. I went here and I went here um, because I enjoyed writing, but I never really took it seriously until like five or six years ago, probably shortly after I turned 30, I got into, I just like, it it had always been this nagging thing in me that like I wanted to write more, but I just didn't make, I didn't prioritize it and make the space for it. And, and that finally changed and I started to get a couple things published here and there Um, was mainly writing fiction when I started and got a few short stories published and now now I'm pretty interested in creative nonfiction um and I'm in an MFA program in creative nonfiction um where I'm really just kind of trying to trying to chase this dream and and give it its full chance um because I really do enjoy I really do enjoy writing even though it's it's hard and frustrating and well, yeah, sometimes I, think, I want was, to quit um was it you that you feels might like have one of the things the other day when we when we talked at the art fair, but it was saying like the, the thing that like a lot, there's like a lot of 
famous writers out there that actually hate writing, like the actual act of it. I think like I know like Hunter S. Thompson was one like who famously like said that the worst part about writing is writing or something like that. It's it seems to be pretty um, a pretty common theme amongst writers that the process is is sort of universally torturous. Um, And so then you wonder, like, why do people do that? And I ask myself that all the time. And there's a, oh, I'm forgetting now who said this, but there's a great quote, which is, oh man, who said it? Um, some author said, I hate writing, but I love having written. And I really, really relate to that. Like, I, I'm just like digging my heels in every time I'm trying to sit down to actually write and the process itself. I'm just like, oh, this is so hard. I'm, I don't know why I do this. But then if I did write, and I like the feeling the it's, it's so gratifying to know that I like sat down and actually did it every time I do that. It right. kind of, there's keeps a lot of satisfaction um, when you look at that. Uh, I also finished, thought of when you have like a finished body of work, whatever it may be and brings. There definitely is. Yeah, there, there definitely is. And I also thought about something recently and I'm sure probably like almost any thought that any of us have, someone else has already thought of this, but, um, they're, you know, writers love to bitch about writing. They love to complain about writing. And um, it's so common to read any writer's book on the craft itself is like all about how hard it is and blah, blah, blah. And I was always wondering, like, what is it about writing that makes that seem like it's so true for everyone? And then I realized that like, oh, writers can use their craft to <laughs> complain about writing. Whereas like, a potter can't really like complain about making pots while making pots or, you know, like it's, it's, it's like maybe, maybe every artist or creative actually feels mm. this way about the process. I mean, I'm sure not everyone does, but maybe it's more universal than just writers, but it's just writers that are using their medium I, to I complain like about it. <laughs> maybe that's why we hear so much right, about you don't see how many films writing is. about how hard it is to make a movie, you know? <laughs> No, that's no, so, that's awesome. No, so yeah, no. so you're you're in the middle of this this writing program right now. Um and what does that look like for you? Like like uh you said you're focusing on creative nonfiction. Are you hoping to write like like a book or do you have like any if we're dreaming big here, like what's what's the you know, do you have like a um a vision of what, what kind of course you want to take with that? Uh, I, I, I definitely have a partial vision. Um, I went into the program with the hope to write like a, a sort of memoir about these boat trips. Um, but then to, I really like, I really love writing where you kind of pan in and out from like the interior world of someone all the way out to like global issues. Um, I like it when things all kind of connect and there's somewhat of like a braided, a braided thing going on. So my dream was to write, um, a memoir about going to sea as a young person and just, uh, just the adventure stories while also connecting that to another strand of just, um, writing about the current state of our oceans, 
and you know the trouble that they're in ecologically and then also my dad was a marine biologist and he died when I was 19 and so that's been like a big theme of my adult life is kind of like carrying on without him and going to sea definitely felt like a way mm. to connect with him um being such a a marine person so my idea for the book was to kind of have those as the three main strands and weave weave them together of like the adventure story the grief story and like the story of my relationship of my dad and then this bigger story of you know our global issues around um our oceans just being in and and of course the whole planet being in some serious peril because of what we're doing to it as a species but i went into the program with that idea i started to write it um but i also throughout the first three semesters, which I just finished my third semester, um, was also feeling compelled to write some shorter pieces like essays and things. Um, and as I'm now in the home stretch of the program, my mentor who I love and respect has encouraged me to put the longer book length work aside for the time being and just have my thesis be essays because I wasn't going to be able to actually finish, um, the longer work, which I agree. And I feel relieved now that I'm not um, needing to try to spit that whole thing out in the next right. That's a common. Months. That's a common um, practice. I feel like for uh, that a lot of writers will take uh, when you know trying to digest the enormity of of putting together a, a full book is. I feel like I've heard that a lot. That writers will often write a series <clears throat> of of essays or short stories to try to uh, kind of concentrate their mind and and get you know, write these chunks that then later you can go back in and try to weave together or use as a springboard, um, when, when tackling something longer. Exactly. Exactly. And it's really just, it's such good practice for, um, working on your craft and finding your voice and going through, you know, multiple rounds of editing, like to, to practice all these things that take time to, you know, actually get good at, without trying to do it, you know, an entire book length work, um, is a really good way to get, you know, seasoned enough to maybe be able to tackle something as large as a book. So everyone, you know, approaches it in their own way and on their own timelines. But I think for me, it, it does make sense to slow it down a little oh, bit yeah, and work man. on shorter things because I was, I was definitely feeling daunted by the, by the longer project and it was sort of just paralyzing me and I wasn't actually writing very much. Right. Um, so hopefully by the end of the program, I'll feel a little bit more like I'm capable of sitting down and, and trying to piece something longer together. But then I have other thoughts too. You know, I, I like to write, I generally am writing about ecological themes, but usually there's some personal aspect to it like I'm usually in the pieces in some capacity but I'm not just writing about my own life I'm sort of writing about the world and a lot of the time um, trying to draw attention to climate change or habitat loss or you know why biodiversity is important and all these you know just basically trying to do what so many people are trying to do which is to shake people up and make them aware that we are living in really pretty dire times and we shouldn't be ignoring the enormity of the the issues and what the consequences may be if we continue to ignore them so i like to try to like i would i i, I hope to 
one day be writing books or essays that people find are accessible enough and maybe artistic enough that you want to stick around to learn something of value. That's what I would hope to eventually like be able to do. And I would say I'm still, I'm still a long ways off, but it's a a worthy aspiration. I, uh, I checked out, you know, I, I wanted to get kind of like a, you know, in, in preparing for this conversation, I wanted to kind of get like a good broad view of, of your growth and your, you know, your, your different articles. So I read, you know, I kind of covered the, the bit, the bigger story that you did in these different segments on the Nat Geo post. And then I read your two most recent pieces in Orion magazine and, um, the, uh, the bioluminescent stories, they really, uh, you know, they stimulated this memory that I wanted to share with you. Cause it kind of, I think relates exactly to what you were, um, you were talking about if you, if you'll permit me i i have my own bioluminescent story i wanted to tell you please i would love to hear i never i never tire of hearing about people's uh, amazing yeah, so stories about i was uh, 29 it was like the start of my 30th year and i decided um you know having had some conversations i was kind of at a similar spot i think of just not I had just gone through like a really rough breakup and I was starting to put myself back together and wasn't, wasn't really sure where my life was going or what direction it want, I wanted to take. But, um, but I had these series of dreams of, uh, about India and I knew that I wanted to go there. And, um, as it happened, I ended up living in this house with this Indian man that was born there and grew up in the States. And, uh, he was getting ready to go back and we had this conversation in the hallway one night and it like, he just pretty much convinced me to, uh, that I should do it. And I ended up, you know, working some jobs and raising a little bit of money. And I just remember buying my ticket one night. And once I clicked that purchase, like just this wave of it, you know, everything in the world seemed really good. (laughs) And, uh, and I ended up going and I, I hung out with, you know, Peter Oppenheimer, who's from our community for the first two weeks. And he took me all around and, um, and then I took off on my own and nice. had a bunch of adventures and eventually ended up on this little beach called paradise beach outside of this town called Gokarna, which is in, you know, Southern India on the, on the yeah. uh, coast of the Arabian sea and, um, you know, just South of Goa and, mm-hmm. It was this little beach about the size of a football field. You know, half of it was covered in palm trees. And I went originally for just a day hike and saw a friend of mine sitting in a hammock. And he was like, you know, he was like, hey, you should just get a hammock and stay. And as I was like, you know, the only way to get there was to hike in or to take a water taxi. And I took a water taxi back. And as I was watching the beach recede, I was like, man, maybe I will. And the next day I went into the marketplace in Gokarna and bought a $3 hammock and, uh, went back that night and I ended up staying, you know, for 11 days uh, and meeting this like multinational family. And we ended up traveling a, a bunch together and I tried to leave a couple times and I just couldn't cause it was just, it really was paradise. But during the time I was there, uh, what, what I discovered to my delight was that, uh, that there was a huge bioluminescent bloom. And, um, you know, I had been out on Tamales Bay a couple times and seen it, but 
so there was something about being in the tropics at night where the, the water was so warm, there wasn't any need. Like I could have stayed in forever if I wanted to and jumping in and just yeah. the level of, of intensity because there were no electric lights. Uh, it was so bright. It was like being an avatar and, you know, there was like the classic green, but then there was this uh, neon blue that I'd never seen before. And I just started like, you know, I'm sure you had this yeah, experience, yeah, but yeah. I would just like shoot my arm out of the water. And then there would just be these like droplets of light running down my, my arm. And, uh, I, you know, me and my friends were all just like giggling, like little kids. <laughs> and, um, I got out of the water and for the next couple nights, I like roamed the beach and I was like the bioluminescent uh, evangelist. <laughs> and I would go up to like people I didn't know and be like, have you been in the water yet? And, the, you know, picture like a cute couple and they're just hanging out. And they're like, oh, no, we haven't. And I'm like, you got to go in. And they're like, ah, I yeah. don't know. It's dark. Like, and I would just kind of pressure them and be like, no, please. Like, this is, you know, this is like a once in a lifetime experience. Like, I, I'm not. Trust me. I have no incentive to get you to do this other than I want you to experience this. You like once you get in, you will not you like you'll remember this for the rest of your life. And like time and again, I would convince these people to jump in. And it was always 100%. the same, you know, a minute after I left them and heard them splash in the water, I'd hear the same giggles and shrieks and childish uh, exclamations. And, and they all came back to me afterwards and were just like, thank you so much. Oh my God. You know, like so excited. But, uh, you know, that's definitely something I, I love that. You, yeah. you, that was some yeah. good preaching you were doing, man. That's, uh, it, I just, there's so, there's so much beauty and wonder in this world and, you know, not to compare anything to anything else, but <laughs> I just still can't believe that we live on a planet, even just with liquid water, right? It's just so incredible. It's insane and amazing and a miracle that we live on this planet that is covered in liquid water. And then on top of that, that the water glows at night when you swirl your fingertips through it. It's like how, what more could you ask for in your home planet? Right. It's like the stuff of, of dreams. It's what you, it's what people I think imagine like distant worlds to be like. And I feel like the ocean is full of pretty much every, thing we could never imagine that's right here on our planet with us and you know there's so much obsession with aliens and space travel and and i'm just like wow it's a what a lack of imagination <laughs> like it's all here just just study marine biology and you'll you'll have everything you could ever want to blow your mind um and bioluminescence is one of the the surest ways to just get someone to drop to their knees in awe and wonder for right? this there, world that, that we get feeling, to live in and um, yeah, i feel so lucky like like you know we've all we have an unlimited supply of of curated digital experiences and electronic light shows and anyone who's been to a music festival or to burning man has yeah. witnessed these like amazing feats of, of engineering and electronics but there's something about being in in a natural environment totally. with it where you're witnessing like the elemental power behind it that just i don't know maybe it's because i'm a weirdo hippie from the north bay but it just 
it does something like it, there, there's some level of of uh i i think maybe because i it really does have this grounding effect in in, in like stimulating like this kind of lucidity um that sometimes when you're overstimulated or you're in like yeah. a, a more you know uh artificial environment um it's easier to kind of disassociate from the experience but i was like getting to be in that i was at one a dream state but i had never been so present in my body um, yes just had that whole totally yeah i mean it's interesting you just said the word lucidity because that's the the root of that word is light right loose um and that's what we're talking about i don't know that just that just hit me but um yeah, it just seems like as as humans, we're so drawn to the sublime and the miraculous and the psychedelic. Like, to like, why do we all like to watch sunsets? Right? There's all that pretty color in the sky, and it doesn't look ordinary. It's it's special. It's unique. It, and the same with the northern lights, and the same with seeing a, a big animal like a whale or a grizzly bear. It's like these standout moments that are so outside of the norm and and bioluminescence fits so perfectly into that and for anyone who doesn't know what bioluminescence is it's it's any um it's basically any life form that can make its own light and so a firefly would be probably the most classic example of bioluminescence but in the oceans there's a lot of different types from like bioluminescent squid to a lot of a lot of things that exist in the abyssopelagic deep sea make their own light because there's no other light down there. And then the bioluminescence we're talking about right now is these microscopic dinoflagellates, these little single-celled organisms that are all over the place in the oceans. Um, some of them are bioluminescent. So when they, if you stir up the water, it creates, like when you agitate the water that they're in, because they're in there by the millions and millions, but they're invisible, um, to the naked eye, but when you stir them up, they all let off this little bit of light that they make. And so together, when a wave crashes or when, for example, when a boat is cutting through bioluminescent water, which I got to see a lot at night, it'll be pitch black and you'll just go hang your head off the bow of the boat and where it's cutting through the water, these ribbons of light are peeling off the bow. And it is so unbelievable to witness that I've seen it you know, I've probably seen bioluminescence over a hundred times and I never, yeah. ever, ever grow tired of it. It never gets old. And it's so fun. It's such a delight to show somebody that phenomenon for yeah. their first time. It's just incredible. So you got, I'm glad you got to experience that. And then swimming in mm -hmm. it with a, with a mask on is an unbelievable thing where you can just like, you know, cause your eyes are open underwater and every movement you make, you're just yeah. completely encapsulated in light. Anyway, these are what these articles that, that Hobart was referring to um, are about, and it, they were fun to write. And kind of a nice example for me of like, sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't have anything to write about. I don't have any like unique experiences. <laughs> I'm like, well, actually, like getting to see that much yeah. bioluminescence in this world is really, I'm really lucky, you know, very, very fortunate. And what's a way that I could like help to share that gift that I received is to, you know, write about it and hope that other people can get a sense of that wonder 
even if they didn't get to see it with their own eyes and then, or maybe be inspired to go, you know, try to seek it out because there's a lot of this stuff out there. I mean, the tropical world, the yeah. sea is just glowing at night on a moonless night. The sea is glowing almost everywhere I've ever been. And, um, even here at home in the San Francisco Bay area, Tamales Bay has really good bioluminescence for a few months every year, um, that you can go kayak out to, and you can find online where to do that. And some of the nights I've spent out kayaking or paddleboarding on Tamales Bay have been just as good as anywhere oh, I've been. Oh, it's gorgeous, especially on Indonesia. like a moonless so night. You know, you can. I have I've had numerous times. Yeah, has to, where you has have to be a, a moonless night. A galaxy of stars yeah. above and a galaxy of stars below, and I've actually seen fish. You know, you can watch fish swimming at a depth, and there's like a trail. You know, these tracers behind them, and I wanted to ask yeah. you, like, what a yeah, yeah, What's yeah. the the evolutionary benefit for these microorganisms from lighting up? I, I, it makes sense from like maybe a larger organism, like a like a fish or something. But do you know why they produce this? Huh. I I, I feel that I should also <laughs> know the answer to that question. Um, I don't know why these tiny diatoms would do that. Or sorry, dinoflagellates. Um, why do they it, do to that? To me, it seems like it'd make it sure. easier to, uh, not sure to become why. snacks. You know, it almost seems like a disadvantage if if there if it's like stimulating in a way that is out of their control, like like the water's being churned up. You know, and if there's one thing the ocean does, it moves, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, oftentimes, showy color in animals is to warn predators that um you're not mm. good to eat because you might be toxic i don't have any idea if that applies to this i mean these are tiny tiny microscopic organisms we can only see the light because so many of them are glowing at once um i don't actually i've never read why and i've actually read about i've read about bioluminescence quite a bit i've never read the why or if i have i don't recall but i'm not a I'm mystery not sure. for the ages <laughs> get back to you yes let's let us let us let many things remain mystery well, um you know it was it was cool it was just so cool reading about you know your experiences on this second voyage which i would love to also talk to you at some point about and i watched the music videos that that your friend dolphin made they're pretty awesome um i wanted to ask oh, you cool. who did all the video yeah. work for that because the videos look so beautiful Yeah, on that second voyage, um, our first mate, Dolphin, he goes by Dolphin or Christopher Cook. Um, his longtime girlfriend, Nadia Lowe, who is from Singapore, and they, the two of them were working on that boat for years um, before I rejoined. Mm -hmm. They weren't, neither of them were part of the original crew, but then they had been on the boat for years. And she's an incredible videographer. Um, she works professionally doing commercials and stuff in Singapore. Um, and we were very lucky to have her expertise on that, on that voyage. Cause she captured, she really captured the place in a way oh, that man, a bunch of amateurs so, were never so going pro, to like so. all the shots yeah. and the quality of the footage and everything like that. The drone shots were beautiful. Yeah. She had a, she had a drone that she had just was just learning how to use on the voyage, which on a moving boat, it's not easy. It's not easy to fly a drone and then land it again. Um, so 
it was always kind of tense and, and hilarious to watch her trying to get oh, the yeah, drone back imagine. to the moving ship. I, I, uh, <laughs> but she I always was hired did. to fly my drone yep. on Tomales Bay, and uh, we were shooting out at Hog oh, Island, nice. them, them uh, planting seed oysters on these big crates. And uh, I had to do a couple flyovers of the cool. boat and whatnot. But my my producer was asking me if I could uh, just launch the drone off the boat, but it was such a small little catamaran. And there was like, you know, there were so many cables. Mm-hmm, yeah. I, I had him put me on shore and I launched from shore, but I could only imagine yeah, like, uh, you know, the difficulties of not wanting to run into any rigging or anything like that. Almost every time. Yeah. Cause so many times when you fly a drone, right, you just, you just have it automatically land where it took yeah. out off from, but you can't do that on a boat. And so most of the time, Nadia would be manually like bringing this thing back to the stern, which is the part of the boat that has the least mm-hmm. amount of obstructions, but there's still plenty. And then dolphin would have to grab oh, wow. it out of, out of midair with his hand yeah. where there's like this blade going that I don't know what it would have actually done. I've if, seen plenty yeah, what, of, what do you, uh, yeah, it seems like it would have chopped him up with, pretty good. Yeah. Um, but he would grab it out of the air. Multiple scars yeah. on their wrists and you know, they're curious looking scars if you get them, but no, <laughs> I usually pi- like to pilot mine in on manual, but, um, but then, you know, you can land it. Now, I'm usually landing it in a stable place. So yeah, try you'd have to be pretty to catch it. And, um, that's awesome, man. Well, are you, uh, continuing to publish? Like where should, uh, should people look to find your, your work as you continue to write? Um, currently I'm not publishing anything. So this grad program just got me writing a ton, but it's hard to actually have enough time to like, go through multiple editing processes on any piece I'm working on. Cause I just have to produce so much raw material all the time that, um, I don't really feel, even though I'm writing more than ever, I don't feel like I'm ever really quite finishing anything at the moment. So I haven't been sending stuff out to be published hopefully sooner than later. But, um, yeah, I mean, if anyone's actually interested, I always, I always like promote anytime I get something published on social media on Instagram and Facebook. I'm Sam Keck Scott. And then I have a website, um, Sam Keck where I always put any new piece that I can link, um, where I have all the, all the pieces that Hobart's talking about are all on there. Sam Keck Um, yeah, but for the time being, I'm not, I'm not really publishing. Hopefully, hopefully soon enough, I'll have something that I feel like I could send out, but even then, then it's a whole process right, and sure. it's not, it's not easy, um, to actually, get something through but occasionally i've been lucky like like any creative the the business side uh, the logistical side is often the one that we you know i feel like kind of dread a little more or it can get in the way of actually being you know a raw raw creative um i want it oh 100 percent. yeah yeah i really don't like it and it's very demoralizing and you start to try to I find myself like trying to write for what I think that they would want to see, which isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. actually my voice. And then you, you know, you lose that authenticity and, and it all goes to hell. So yeah, I, it's, it's a tricky part of it for sure. I mean, writing is not an easy world to crack into. Speaking of Um, that, just that, how did you end up getting on national geographic? I'm just curious. I know we could have 
inserted it earlier in the conversation, but um, when you were going on this voyage, did you have to pitch to somebody? What, what was that process like? Yeah, so the um, the executive director of the Biosphere Foundation, Gay Alling, um, who was also on the boat with us and is uh, you know running the whole show. Basically, her and Laser are um, partners, and they he's the captain, she's the director, and um, she came up with the idea because she knows I'm a writer and had a publishing history going, and she said, "What if we could get you?" on the National Geographic Society blog, wouldn't that be so cool? And so her and I put together a little pitch um, and they they said yes. So it was, uh, you know, it, it always helps when you're doing something kind of going on this voyage to Raja Ampat, the most biologically diverse place on the planet, um, on this old boat and having someone who already has published a few things, like it's a good combo of to get That's to get awesome. a place like Nat Geo's interest. Um, but I still <laughs> felt lucky to get through the door because I know that they're getting pitched constantly by really um, talented people who are doing cool stuff. So it definitely didn't feel like a guarantee. And That's I was so thrilled awesome. when they said, yeah. Hell yeah, man. Um, well, uh, I guess what the, the only thing, you know, that, uh, that I have left to ask you is just, you know, we had talked about, maybe potentially if you wanted sharing a little passage or something of your writing, I think that might be like a good punctuating end to our conversation. If it's something that you feel comfortable or interested in doing. Totally. I would love to. Um, Yeah. I was thinking it's, I'm glad that I, I told you a little bit about the longer potential book that I'm, have started, but I'm a long way from finishing, um, about the ocean voyages and my dad. Cause I have, uh, like a prologue to what I know. Obviously I need to write the rest of the book, but I have a, a prologue to that story, which I already explained. So I was thinking maybe I'd read that. Um, and it's short and, uh, it's sort of the launching point into the bigger story. Great. So here it is. <clears throat> When I was little and he was big, I think I thought my father was the sea. That the warm man who tucked me in at night, who was not only father, but also lamplight and book, bathwater and blanket, mother, brother, sister, became marine by day, dissolving into gleaming, flickering, endless blue as he carried me across the sand in the glossy morning light. He was big hands, silver hair, bushy eyebrows, voice of sweet syrup, but also somehow gasping prehistoric barnacles, bubble-mouthed crabs, and green anemones that grabbed at my small creaturely fingers like hungry sticky flowers while I squealed with toddler rapture in his arms. Not only was my father also the sea, but I think I thought that I was too, which meant I was also him. We were the string of pelicans festooned above the serpentine waves. We were the sharp cold of the briny surf. We tucked us in at night and slept so safe and so sound, dreaming ourselves a baby whale following our mother's song through a world of smooth blue glass and golden featherine light. At some point, as I grew older, my reality was no longer a place where a father could also be an ocean, nor a son a father. There were boundaries now, differentiation, things to build an ego with. 
When I was 19 years old, something happened that made everything possible again. He died. My father, the marine biologist who used to be the ocean, who used to be me. In the months afterwards, I found myself standing at the seashore every day, a teenage boy strangled by grief, pulled to the sea as if by a moon, staring out at the green galloping waves, at the pelicans skimming the curling surf with their beaks of ancient stone, watching the foam roll like sudsy tumbleweeds across the sand. Day after day, as I breathed in the heavy iodine stink of the nearby tide pools, my mind began to rearrange itself, and I stepped from one world back into another, a world where, if I remember correctly, I think I thought he was the sea again. So I went looking for him. Wow, man. Dude, that's incredible. That's it. I, I can't wait to read that book. I I loved that. That was thank you so much for sharing that. That was such a cool passage. Yeah, man. Thank thank you. That, uh, the the imagery you that, that. That, uh, that you're employing there is uh, just uh, spectacular and um dude thank you so much for coming on the bart cast man and i uh i certainly would i i appreciate it i appreciate you asking me on yeah i was kind of <laughs> like why does he want me to come on his podcast yeah, what's, but anyway what's so interesting about my life i've only uh, sailed really fun, across man. the three oceans three seas and a hundred year old boat you know <laughs> <laughs> but yeah man uh, <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. I, guess. I would love to uh, yeah. have you on again when you're, you know, to promote your book whenever it is uh, manifest. And, um, dude, just keep doing it, man. Definitely. You got real talent. Yeah. Let's, for let's sure. hope that day comes. Um, I, I appreciate it, Hobart. Well, you, this was great, man. You made me feel real comfortable, and this was a, it was fun to talk to you. I yeah. forgot we were on a podcast most it's of the time. Job, so that's my job, brother. You thing. know, that's 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 my role as host. So. <laughs> Exactly. Um, you were, I mean, once we got you into exactly. storyteller mode, I, I was like, oh yeah, this guy's a writer for sure. You, you can definitely weave, weave your tales well. And I'm uh, looking forward to reading more of, of sure. what you produce. Well, I, I look forward to getting some more stuff out there and, uh, I look forward to Hell seeing yeah, your films when they start on, coming out on one that will take place in our hometown. Hopefully if things go well, but, uh, wait one more time. Yeah. Like one that. time. Like, yeah, you told me a little will bit. you just, uh, repeat where people can, can find you and, and contact you if they want and, and read your work. Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Sam Keck. Scott Keck is my middle name. K E C K. So if you go on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, but I don't do too much Twitter, um, Sam Keck Scott is my handle. And then my website is samkeckscott.net. That's where your published work is, can be found. Um, yeah, exactly. Great, man. Well, hey, exactly. I'm wishing you all the best on That's this it? Tuesday. And uh, let's keep in touch, man. It was It was a true pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Woo. All right. Who's coming with me on my own boat ride? Who wants to go sailing? Uh, I'm sold. <laughs> I, I definitely, you know, listening to him talk about it really makes me want to just go jump on a ship and sail the seas myself. That sounds like quite the adventure. Um, yeah, many thanks, Sam, for coming on. Great talking to you. 
and uh, so cool hearing about just your whole experience and and um, and writing and and uh, I I heartily encourage with great enthusiasm any of y'all to go check out Sam's writing on his website. I think that was Sam Keck Scott dot net www.samkeckscott.net um check it out there's some really cool stuff there the the couple most recent pieces too about his father really beautiful um and uh all right you turkeys uh have a great uh holiday uh i guess next week's kind of when it starts to ramp up even more but uh but it feels to me like we're already here um last podcast of my 32nd year and uh or 33rd year i guess last podcast of being 32 uh, i don't know you guys tell me if my voice changes uh at 33 we'll see maybe this will be the year uh much love to you all thanks again sam for coming on and uh until the next time my friends keep on shining <laughs>